Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. on Twitter, and I have with me actually someone who uh, who encountered me first in in my more academic life, a rare thing on this on this podcast. Uh, Will Parton, best known to me prior to uh, striking up a Twitter friendship, which I'm glad for, uh, for responding to uh, one of my only published articles, one of my only peer reviewed articles on uh, on aesthetics and video games. Will, uh, thanks for coming on. I hope you aren't. I hope you aren't as brutal. Uh, and and just like uh, you, know, you know, salt the earth, cruel as you were in your response to me. But uh, you know, I'm ready for it. I can't help it. It's, it's you know, sometimes I'm just yeah. <laughs> no, Will was actually very very nice in his response. It was a it was a, a very generous response, uh, such that I thought about responding to it back, like that was part of the plan. And then I thought, no, there wasn't a lot brought up that you didn't like. So it seems sort of like well. I don't know what I'd respond to necessarily unless I wanted to write more. So it was very generous and, and uh, also generous for you to be on today. Uh, thanks for thanks for being here. What are you what what's your what's your over the last couple of years, what is your relationship with video games kind of evolved into? Yeah, so um, I think the story kind of starts when I was in college and I was an art history major and I kind of had this revelation one day of as I was sitting in class and I wondered, you know, I always, I loved video games growing up. My, um, played mostly, mostly Starcraft. My parents had always like, they banned consoles from the house because they thought video games were going to, you know, impede my development. And so it got me a computer because they didn't realize that you can play video games on a computer. Um, yeah, that, that was <laughs> like, we're part of the last <laughs> yeah. generation where like you can get away with that con. Yeah. Um, and so that meant, but that meant that I really only like fiended Starcraft for like a really long time, which is kind of what got me into competitive gaming. And, yeah. um, you know, I was sitting in an art history class one day and sort of had this moment of, I wonder if like people ever study like video games, like they study art history. Uh, and so that kind of got me turned on to, to thinking about games. And by this point I was very like deep in the world of art history and, um, you know, I went. I started a PhD in art history, and I was writing about modern and contemporary art and technology. But um, sort of, I was living the second life, where I was working for an esports team, uh, Evil Geniuses, uh, which then, you know, we put on a sister team, Alliance. Then we became Good Game Agency. Then we got acquired by Twitch, and then I was running social media for the teams for a long time and sort of writing nice. about them. And you know, this was happening, you know, simultaneously to me being in my first few years of grad school. And finally, I get to a point where I was like, you know, what I really want to be writing about is video games, uh, and especially esports. And so, uh, in 2016, I kind of, you know, made made the decision to make a change and quit my art history PhD program. Spent about nine months uh, working as a freelance writer, mostly covering esports. Uh, by this point, I had I'd left a uh, good game, and. Then went back to grad school um, to do communication, which I found as a field was a lot more um, you know, amenable to actually studying esports and thinking about it as, you know, in some ways, I think a really a paradigmatic mode of, of competition for the world we live in now, for this world that is, you know, so reliant on large scale digital platforms 
Um, and yeah. I, I thought like esports were a really fascinating vantage point to think about the way that culture is changing in sort of the age of the internet. Yeah, I agree. And I think I, I, that's a really incisive point you have about um, different areas, particularly areas outside of the humanities being more amenable to video games as sort of like cultural touchstones or, or even like if we're going to get uh, more gaudy about it, like epistemological or, or even like sort of like, um, well, epistemological is actually as far as I take it. I wouldn't say ontological yeah. necessarily. We could argue. We that, can go but, there uh, if we want. But we we could, but I don't know. I don't know if the listeners want me to want want me to sort of uh, break off. And we'll just we'll just be Heideggerians the whole episode, and that'll that'll really mess people up. Um, I don't know if you like Heidegger or not. I, uh, I was gonna say, don't but, get me started on the esportsness of esports. So, oh man. Uh, yeah, I just like I had a crisis moment there where I thought <laughs> yeah. maybe I would do it, but uh, you know, uh, but like there is like an, a different epistemological uh, and heuristic uh, approach to video games that I think um, humanities are definitely unwilling to take. I, I've told the story in the podcast before, but the article that that you responded to in Nonsite initially started as a dissertation chapter, and when I presented it to my advisor uh, Nicholas Brown who's a uh, super smart guy and actually a super sort of like open guy to writing about weird stuff. One of his best articles is uh, the genesis of it was his fandom of the white stripe. So like he's not a prude, mm-hmm. but he was like, he was like video games. And I guess go for it if you want, but who knows? And his, his one comment on the paper was, you know, I don't really follow this, but you made this sound smart, which is pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> so it's just like there, there's a lack of belief there, but it seems like in communications and some and almost some of the more soft science into hard science uh, disciplines, there's more of an acceptance of these things as important cultural documents. So I, I totally get it. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what what do you understand in terms of uh, so like explain a little more what you're talking about in terms of competition? Like I I'm I'm fascinated by this idea of competition in the age of um, you know, massively connected, um, technical networks. Um, how does it differ? Like what is, what is sort of the epistemological difference between something like a classical sense of competition, say mm-hmm. like, you know, T-sports or traditional sports mm-hmm. versus. I, I like to call them meat sports. Meat sports. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool too, actually. That makes it, that makes it awesome. That makes it like, it explains why I like eating so many ribs and right? like steaks. <laughs> Well, that's the, you were all going to end up a competitive game or competitive eating by the end of this contest. There you go, right? Um, also, I think you know. I try to think of you know when I think about esports, I think there's a lot of times an obsession of thinking of them as this like wildly new thing, and I, I think that is you know part of if you're an esports fan, you have this self image of oh, I'm on like the bleeding edge of culture. There always is this kind of like revenge of the nerd stick to it. Uh, and there's always something like sort of weirdly Oedipal that like esports is going to come and like destroy sports somehow. Um, but to me, a lot of the the most interesting ways of thinking about esports is you know and not that they're new, but in fact that they're really really old in some ways. Mm-hmm. And um, because you know virtually no society uh, from which we have any meaningful amount of archaeological evidence lacks um, you know some some evidence for like organized competitive play, which sort of suggests um, that. You know, there's something, you know, very fundamentally human about, you know, the drive to compete and bear witness to competition. So, um, and that obviously, you know, if, but if the drive to compete is something that's really sort of like, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say bred into us, but um, certainly, you know, pretty fundamental to being human, um, you nevertheless, like, you know, you, you compete with the things you have around you. And so there's, you know, a long history of, you know, where sporting and technology come together, whether that's thinking about you know, what we would understand as you know the, the, the ancients and the things they chose to make sports out of, or a sort of in a more modern age thinking about um, like the modern Olympic pentathlon, supposed to be sort of the the premier event of the original uh, revival of the modern Olympics, um, that was supposed to simulate a cavalry officer behind enemy lines, and so there's oh really you know, yeah I think it's super fascinating, and so this, I think it's but it's also a story of how. Um, you know, sports are always sort of updating to their technological context. And so in that way, you know, insofar as um, computers and sort of networked technologies are really fundamental to the way we live now, it seems very natural to me that we would find a way to turn them into a kind of competitive venture. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of the second part of that is, 
Um, I do like. I always want to make a really clear distinction between you know esports and competitive gaming. Uh, it's sort of like squares and and rectangles, where um, all esports is competitive gaming, but not all competitive gaming is esports. Right. Um, sure. And you know, I think it's really meaningful to me to think about. You know, sometimes I think we have a tendency to think of like competitive gaming and esports as this weird kind of offshoot of the gaming of the history of gaming. Um, but, you know, going back to sort of the what we typically think of the origins of uh, the history of video games with things like Space War and the PDP-1 computer, um, that, you know, the computer was, was too weak to simulate even, you know, the weakest of AIs. And so the sort of the design choice was, no, you had to play against someone. So right. that means that, you know, video games begin as a competitive. Competitive gaming, you know, happens long before single player gaming gets in the picture. Um, and so that suggests that, like, competition is really our heritage as players, and it's not really, sure. you know, it's not actually a deviation from it. You know, it is the history. Um, yeah, and there's a there's a sense where, like, the original games or, like, initial games where, like, uh, you're thinking about, like, their foray or their, their entry into uh, popular society or sort of, like, uh, gaming society as such – I mean, if you think about it, like in terms of arcades, these sort of like pong machines or, or whatever, like uh, asteroids uh, coexisting with stuff like air hockey or um, pool tables or something like that, right? Like there is a sense of all the things, the things that bring all these things together is competition. It's not, there's no commonality outside of the fact that you and one of your buddies is going to go on these tables or uh, consoles or whatever and try and beat the other one. Yeah, and that, and that even games that are nominally designed to be single player, you know, somehow, you know, you put your, you know, you put your quarter down on the arcade to say I have next game, and you try to beat their high score. So even if there isn't right. like, you know, diegetically a way for like intrahuman comp- interhuman competition to happen, you know, sort of you you build sort of socially a competition around it. So that's, um, you know, so that's I think one of my like hobby horses is thinking about how fundamental competition has been to the history of, of gaming. Um, which is, you know, not, of course, the same as esports. Esports for me is, you know, when people really start to consciously emulate um, sort of the structure of sports, which is sort of like late 90s, early 2000s, and sort of make that kind of conscious rhetorical comparison. And, and so let me let me raise a specter here that um, complicates uh, it complicates uh, competitive gaming, I guess. <laughs> I thought you were going to um, raise a different specter. But... No, no, not that specter. That specter is always around. We don't know. <laughs> It's not even a ghost anymore. It just lives in the house. Um, it's 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 the it's our it's our uh, fourth roommate. Um, but uh, no, the, um, the the idea of of I, I like how you said diegetic scoring. That's an interesting way to to, to imagine it, right? Or diegetic competitive, um, where where sort of like you get scoreboards, right? And of course, diegesis uh, or or diegetic. Uh, a lot of people will know it from film in in terms of thinking about diegetic sound, right? Where like um, diegetic sound happens within the context of the film um you know it's music but it's coming from a radio as opposed to being the score uh whereas non-diegetic is coming from uh the score right it's a john williams song that the characters don't hear um i got that right right okay good i'm always worried that i screw up diegetic and non-diegetic i know it's a ridiculous thing to do as an academic as an academic um but uh uh now that i'm sort of like you know uh, functionally excommunicated from the academy vis-a-vis the job market, um, I feel I can start asking people, like, was that right? And not have to worry about, like, one of my advisors in the back shaking their head. <laughs> um, it's, it's a weird kind of freedom. But um, in a sense, the the diegesis of competitive gaming are leaderboards. But the, the non-diegetic parts of uh, competitive gaming are your friends next to you or people putting the quarter down. Or like uh, trash talk or whatever, right? Like stuff that literally does not exist in the game itself, right? right. It's not about like that's not something that was programmed in. It's something that's occurring in the world around you. Um, but in some ways, like the the internetization, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, the connectivity of contemporary competitive gaming, where like you know I log on to Street Fighter Five, I can go into a lobby and play someone within my server space and I'll never meet them. I'll probably never play them again, um, but I'll play them and then they'll be gone. Right. Like it's not, I'm not connecting my computer to another computer. It's not a land party. It's not couch co-op or couch competition. I'm not, ta- it's not an arcade. I'm not talking to the people or interacting with the people or coexisting with the people that I'm competing with. And there seems to be something like fundamentally uh, to sort of be uh, traditionally American here, non-sporting about that, right? Like it, it, 
does the physical space, I guess, to make this a question, uh, does it matter in competitive gaming and then does it matter in esports? That's a good question. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, there is, I mean, there is a materiality and a physicality to esports, and I'll address each in turn. Um, so it's, I like a lot of times when we think about esports, we have this sort of vision of, oh, it's born online. It comes out of cyberspace, you know, it's out there in the cloud and the server is sort of disconnected from um, material reality, physical reality. And, you know, maybe to some degree that's true, but of course you still are being shaped by servers. Um, thinking about, you know, the history of Dota, the game that I care most about um, in the U.S., a lot of, you know, the teams that formed were based on whether or not you were on U.S. East or U.S. West. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there still is this way that, um, you know, physical sites play a role in shaping these communities. Um, you know, they're never, you're never just totally just in the cloud. Um, and sort of the second is, you know, the physicality question is, is something that comes up as a lot, as you can imagine in esports. And, um, you know, I, one of the things I think I'd point to is thinking about how like counter-strike players train, um, you know, when they, you know, you really, one of the things you have to have to be really great at that game is basically like a flick where you're just going to be able to like, you know, turn around instantly and go like 270 degrees, you know, on like X axis and like 40 degrees on Y axis and like nail it like almost pixel perfect. And, you know, right. to do that, you know, you're going to have your big mouse pad because Counter-Strike players and they play with a big mouse pad, whereas like Dota players are pretty agnostic about the size of the mouse pad they play with. Um, and so there's, you know, they basically train that flick until they get it exactly right. Um, so there is like, you know, that's like a really like profoundly embodied experience of sort of getting mastery of the body in a way. And even if it is that sort of like micro movements rather than macro movements we traditionally associate with sports. Um, mm. So that's, you know, one way in which I think, you know, there, because obviously there's not one kind of athleticism that is common to all the things we call sports. Um, you know, that's very true. Yeah. And so that sort of suggests that, you know, we're, we're always, you know, massaging these boundaries a little bit, you know, a, a great weightlifter does not look like a great football player does not look like a marathon runner. Um, and so to me, that sort of suggests that most of the arguments that really try to kind of come down really strong and say like esports can't be sports because of, you know, X thing about the body, those fall apart pretty fast. Um, because then you sort of you know, there are lots of examples to point to where, it in fact, is this you know very intense mastery of of the body um, that it is involved in esports. So interesting, yeah. And so, like uh, some of the some of the the questions about materiality, I have. I mean, that definitely addresses a lot of it and speaks to this this problem of esports, where whereby you get aged out of it even faster than something like. Um, traditional sports or meat sports, uh, where like, you know, I mean, I would say it's sort of like the career of a, of an NFL running back. Like by the time that you're 25, you might be done. Um, cause like, uh, uh, reflexes are so important. Um, and in fact, like my reflexes as a 33 year old guy are not going to be as good. And, and in fact, I will be at a constant, almost insurmountable disadvantage, <laughs> in many games because I just can't click the mouse fast enough. I can't flick my wrist fast enough. Um, and in the case of, uh, so I was at a fighting game competition recently, uh, combo breaker in the case of that, like I just can't get off combos fast enough. My wrist speed isn't fast enough, right? Like maybe my mind will be fast enough. I practice enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I find that fascinating. But the other thing I found so fascinating about the fighting game scene was that every single person there said, you got to find your local scene and play there. And so like, in fact, there was a, it wasn't just the materiality of the stick, right? Which as you speak about the, the big pads, like uh, fighting game competitors like to buy, you know, basically arcade sticks that they plug into their systems uh, so that it's, it's not playing on a console stick. It's playing almost as if you had like an arcade board, um, which again is like a very, very physical, very material sort of sensual uh, practice. Um, but there's also like this practice of face-to-face uh, mentorship, I guess, teaching, yeah. uh, coaching, uh, that seems to be lacking. If I were to load up Dota right now, I wouldn't get coaching, right? <laughs> I'd get I'd get the opposite of coaching, except from the actual game, or unless I found someone very. Or, or to get the, like the worst kind of coaching, which is people you don't know yelling at you. Yeah, I'd I'd be like I'd be a, a Rutgers uh, student at any given time. 
Um, but uh, sorry, sorry to Rutgers Sports, the most bullied group of people in the world. Um, but yeah, I mean that's absolutely right. Like that face to face part, like that that sort of like face to face learning element. That way that like you are taught sports uh, from a young age, and really like at this point, whether or not like gender doesn't have actually as much to do with it as it used to. Like I say this being the father of a girl, like she's taught sports at the same rate. I mean, like almost, almost like mm-hmm. I'm sure it's going to change by high school. I'm sure the gender politics will rear their ugly head. But at this point she knows the rules of sports, just like anyone else at any other four year old knows the rules of sports. Um, there's no one available to got, give her that face to face sort of like sit down. Here's how these games work. Here's what you need to do. Here's the, here's how you throw a spiral sort of uh, 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 knowledge. Does that is that a problem? Is that something that needs to be surmounted, or am I just being old fashioned? So specifically, what needs to be surmounted is it the so the, 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 the fact, coaching that, the fact that I can't basically the fact that I can't sit down and have like a Dota coach, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I want to learn how to play football and I'm in high school or I'm in middle school or something like that, like when I'm learning the the basics of the thing, right? Um, a gym teacher is going to say, okay, look, here's how you hold your hand. Here's how you should be holding the football here. Like move your fingers. So they're on the, 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 you know, uh, the stitches, uh, lean back, try and throw it in a spiral. Don't let it wobble around. And then you can practice that and learn muscle memory. Uh, whereas with something like Dota, a lot of times you're going to be just like logging on and no one's going to be like, okay, here's how you uh, mid lane or here's how you jungle, right? Like it's not you don't get that because in fact, like there is no face to face. There's right. no okay. person there kind of coaching you through it. It's just uh sink or swim. Yeah. So, um, this is something I've been, I've been thinking about a lot lately, uh, in, in terms of thinking about labor and esports and where they come together. Oh, interesting. Because, you know, when we think of, you know, cause a lot of, so virtually any esports publisher is going to talk about, you know, what they call their pyramid and this idea that, you know, you have, you know, maybe millions of casual players, um, you know, then, you know, thousands of competitive players, you know, a thousand semi-pros, a hundred pros, and like five, like true superstars, um, that you have to have that sort of, you know, if you want to have the top, you know, zero, 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 one percent that makes esports worth watching, um, then you have to have like millions of players who are not that, um, you know, to actually get those, you know, very, very tiny elite ratios, and that's the same with actual sports too. I mean, like yeah. you need people like me who can't throw a spiral in order to appreciate, uh, you know, watching someone who can throw, and then also people like me who can't catch and watching yeah. people who can't catch. Like it, it's absolutely part of the ecosystem of any good sports. Yeah, yeah. I pretty much gave up on sports when I when I broke my shoulder during a like a high school ultimate frisbee match, and I was like, this this is not for me. It's going to be sports <laughs> from here on I, out. I, you you had early retirement. I you yeah. know that's like. It sucks when a when a promising talent is uh, you're like you're like kind of the the Len bias if he had lived of uh, <laughs> yeah. professional uh, of, ultimate. Of ultimate yeah um, but it, it it produces an interesting question of because great players you know they're things that have to be produced um, like any other commodity and I think like any other skilled um, any other skilled labor um, requires a huge amount of investment into it and you're not necessarily going to sort of reap the benefits of that investment until, you know, someone's incredibly good. So the question is, how do you actually make a sustainable system that lets people go from sort of the bottom of this pyramid to the top of it? And Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's pretty easy, I think, at the bottom where like no one's expecting to like, you know, get paid or, you know, get like formal (laughs) training. Sure. Because they're just playing for fun. And it's, you know, not that hard at the top where like, you know, people are making a shit ton of money. um, And... You know, it's you know you can get your you know easily hire coaches, and you can and it's not easy or it's not hard to like turn that into some kind of value. Um, the middle is the tricky part, and I think every sport has had to sort of grapple with that in one way or another. That's um, so interesting. Whether that's you know thinking of how so the NBA, NFL, MLB, the, like the actual percentage of players who are rookies every year is about twenty percent. It varies like, you know, a couple percentage on either side. But, okay. um, but you know, when they're always choosing, like these leagues are choosing from like a, a huge array of, you know, sort of semi-professional players that have been produced either by college athletics in the case of like, um, you know, basketball and, 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 and football or from sort of like the minor league farm system. Uh, and so, you know, if you're thinking it in sort of like a kind of more Marxist frame, you know, you're... Colleges, you know, they're useful for the NFL in the sense of that, like, they are 
NFL does not have to invest in the colleges, and yet the colleges are producing, um, you know, incredibly highly trained players that they've invested in, um, but, you know, not invested too much, of course, because they're not paying them. So right. um, that's the way that that system sort of remains sustainable, is that they just don't pay the people in the middle. Um <laughs> And then you have something like, you know, the minor league system, which is, you know, you just sort of try to minimize costs in there and or you get really creative. And they sure minimize them. Yeah. Um, like, you know, my team in theory is the Atlanta Braves who are constantly getting in all kinds of shit with their um, all kinds of manipulations of their minor league system in Georgia. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's like so it, I, I actually I've had a piece about this that um, it it may see some sort of modified v- form of light in uh in compete at some point or another but like i feel like it might be a little too uh dour for um <laughs> for esports uh media in general um because basically like i i'm convinced that like so there's this you're of course familiar with this like the the claim that this esports is a billion dollar industry right like this is just a very a, a very like famous and popular claim that people from you know random people on Twitter to Bob Kraft like to throw around. Um, and people have acted on it. Sure. Like, like people are buying teams. Uh, you know, I like the, the, the guy who effectively like runs the investment group that owns the Sixers. I checked his Twitter the other day. Cause I wanted to see if he said anything about Brian Colangelo. Of course he hadn't. <laughs> um, but his last tweet was about like watching someone play 2k and how good it was. And it's like, okay. Yeah. So like there is investment in it. But my my analysis was it's never going to work unless you have the structure there. Like the structure, like how you sort of bring players through, bring bring players up, manage talent. Yes, it's exploitative. Um, but in our current moment, it is also absolutely necessary for a massive billion dollar sports industry. Um, and so, like, yeah, like certain things. Like um, I, I I interviewed ages ago uh, a coach for, at Robert Morris, who's basically like the Bama of esports, um, and that was super interesting learning about the kids who had scholarships and like how they were building a, a kind of like, um, you know, NCAA uh, gaming core. Uh, but it feels so small. Um, and I don't, I don't see how the, I guess you can, I guess I'll, I'll ask you to, to prove me wrong, like, or to sort of counter this. Like, it doesn't seem to me that without like, as it currently stands, it doesn't seem like esports are at all sustainable, uh, without that codified middle ground. Yeah, I mean, I think the burn rate across esports is huge. Like, there will be a bubble at some point, um, but, the bu- bu- but it won't be felt the same way across different esports. Um, some of them, I think, are more sustainable than others. Um, I mean, yeah, but I do think you know, the the pipeline is um, so so. One of the things that Carmack, who's you know one of sort of the big VPs at, at ESL. Um, the Electronic Sports League, which is sort of like probably in the aggregate the biggest esports company in the world. He I talks didn't even realize about Carmack was still doing important stuff. That's wild. Yeah, he's out there. Uh, he loves to argue. Yeah, Every time it. I see him, he just like he, he's like, "I read that thing you wrote. I think you're wrong. Let's talk about it." And I'm like, wow. "All right, man, cool." Um, but but you know, someone who's really smart and and, and in, a, in a position where he sort of you know he sees you know esports from in some ways sort of like the top of esports mountain and. Can, you know, can get a lot of, of, of visibility for that. But one of the things Definitely. he talks about is the the huge need to have like, you know, your next generation of players to be better than your current generation of players. It can't be like um, the best player is the best player because the best player before him retired. Um, okay, right. It's, yeah. you know, actually the best player is the best player because they like supplanted the previous player. You know, esports, you, you get a huge perception problem if it becomes like you have successors, not usurpers. And that's, um, you know, that's, and I think it speaks to the importance of like having this like viable system, um, which is important for tournaments. It's, you know, cause the, the whole thing falls apart without like a constant flow of new talent, um, with, yeah. with sort of the caveat that, that I don't really didn't know what to make of like super smash bros where like, you know, five people have dominated the whole fucking game for the last 10 years. Um, but also that scene hasn't necessarily grown that much. So that, that might be, you know, that's something uh, I don't quite so you're know gonna- enough about. Yeah. You're gonna wish you didn't say that because the person I interviewed just before you uh, is someone who's in the the, the melee scene, uh-huh. and he's talking about how <laughs> it's growing and changing. So uh, okay, well then I may I well, need to take a mulligan on that. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, no, but you're right. Like, uh, but fighting games are actually really interesting. Smash is, is weird. Like, Smash is um, 
Smash is just strange, and, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, interesting reasons, and, and like reasons that kind of hinge upon a lack of support from Nintendo, changing um, changing conditions. It's fascinating, actually, because uh, uh, I'll bore people because they've already listened to this episode, probably. But the you know the the materiality of that is so interesting because you can only play Melee, for instance, on CRT televisions and. Um, and with GameCube controllers, uh, in the ways that Nintendo wants you to anyway at competition, and CRT TVs are becoming more rare. Working GameCube controllers are becoming more rare, and so like that's a problem for the scene. And so there's there's a lot going on there. It complicates things. But if you think about something like Street Fighter, right, where like there are really good Street Fighter players who have been really good forever, um, but there are also very young. Street Fighter players who are winning tournaments, right? Like surprise Street Fighter players. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like you can go to places and get coached up. Like it seems like I I, I did not think I'd be coming back in and harping on this so much, but I, I think like honestly, there's like there's a coaching element to it where like people get to be better because you take someone who has superior athletic skills, let's say. Um, whether or not that is, you know, you are six, seven, uh, 375 pounds and can play an incredible left tackle, or you, uh, you like have extremely fast hands, um, and can, you know, uh, run a, an, an arcade stick really well. Um, you're not going to be able to really handle that unless you have someone who's been there before and maybe isn't as good as you, but can tell you what to do with your talent. Um. And that seems to be like that seems to be what's missing in 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 that in what you just set up there, mm-hmm. right? I guess. Um, I mean, it becomes then a question of, and this is maybe where like my interest in, in platforms kind of comes back into play, um, right. because you know one of the interesting things about you know Smash and even even Brood War to some extent is you know they are, um, and and actually original like CS. So I think part of why so CS has a pretty stable pyramid because in the middle it has the um, you know, ESEA and these other sort of competitive tier things that have been around for a long time that originally made themselves viable because CS, like, in 1.6 was, like, not always ready for, like, serious competition. You didn't have good, like, anti-cheat software. You didn't necessarily have good servers. So, like, that, you know, that actually created an, an area for third parties to come in and sort of, like, build a business out of that. Makes um, sense. And so then, you know, that sort of has, you know, even though like now, of course, there's Steam and, and Counter-Strike is on there, um, that sort of incumbency has meant that there was this, you know, very clear middle part of the pyramid where you got in, you were playing tournaments, you were forming teams, you were, you know, being taught by other players, um, you know, engaging in, in conversations with them. Uh, certainly in Dota, we have like in-house leagues in the U.S. and in EU, which, you know, there is always a system of like vouching um, you know, you get into the right Skype group and then they call you for a scrimmage and you sort of work your way up that way. Um, so, I mean, there is like, you know, there are these opportunities for coaching and those, those are like relatively unregulated scenes, um, insofar as like, you know, they're both, both Valve games and Valve is going to be as hands-off as possible with its properties, um, as sort of we're sure. this week too. Um, <laughs> yeah, for, for, for good and evil. Yeah. Um. Uh, but I mean, as you point out, like being off, being off, hands off in that case has let CS and, um, well, I mean, CS is perfect there. Like that scene has thrived. Um, and then know, for my money, course. it's the healthiest scene that in all of esports in terms of how it's structured. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of how it I produces new players and the quality of play has gone up over the years. Um, I like, it's not necessarily, I'm not big into first person shooters personally, um, but I sort of like, I have a huge respect for know how how well that scene works it's true and like it it reminds me also of like it reminds me a lot of the siege scene um i have a lot of friends who play siege and i've I've played it a little bit recently it's really fun um but it's a game that came out in 2014 to like little acclaim and just has kept like plugging along as a competitive scene like i know it has an esports presence but like it it seems like an esports presence that was hard fought (laughs) and just like people liked it yeah, and I think Ubisoft had a really smart strategy of there. There for a while, it seemed like the thing you do was all right. My game is launching. I'm gonna make a like a three million dollar tournament with a bunch of players who are probably not that good at the game yet. Um, <laughs> right, sure. Because like, how could they be? So, Sounds like a great tournament. Right. <laughs> Can't wait to watch it. 
so they sort of took a different approach, which you know they've they've you know funded, um, you know small like hundred dollar, thousand dollar, you know tournaments, you know weeklies, monthlies, um, and that sort of you know gave obviously you probably weren't going to be making a living off of siege at any point during that, but there yeah. you nevertheless you were buying yourself time to practice, and this is you know Carmack's big thing is esports. Its big question is how do you pay for as many practice hours as possible for as many mm. people as possible. Um, because it's not until you do that that you find like the truly great players who make the whole thing happen. Um, so, and so now like, you know, once these sort of micro scenes, you know, these sort of smaller tournaments, they've been able to sort of like build on them. Um, and now like move into something that is, you know, really starting to look more like a, a formal franchise league, but also has, you know, emerged from this really, you know, healthy and grassroots scene. So that's, I Mm. think that'll be, um, you know, when, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of esports shit at E3, um, and I think a lot I of the imagine, a lot yeah. of the games are going to try to you know emulate that, and I think it's a smart decision um, because there's only so much you can do to design a game to turn it into an esport. Um, you know, esports are I think extremely difficult. You know, as as a design question of how do you make something that's like you know fun to play for lots of people, deep to play for the small portion who want to go pro, and then also fun to watch. Um, and so the most you can do is kind of like make it as compatible as possible um, and then hope, you know, try to like fund the community uh, around it and see if they'll actually turn it into to an eSport. It is this, you know, constant participatory culture. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of the constant participatory culture mixed with like, it feels a lot like early, um, like early MLB. Like even, even like post, uh, post-merger, not post-merger, but post sort of like... Um, uh, the market shrinks to just the American and National League MLB. Because, <laughs> um, of course, before that, it's just the Wild West. But, like, the idea that you would need, like, barnstorming tours or, uh, you know, tryouts or, you know, wh- how do I find the people who are good at this game? Well, like, uh, I'll just have, like, uh, you know, I'll have people pitch against Babe Ruth as an exhibition, right? Like, there's there's a kind of carnivalesque quality to it at the same point of, like, especially in terms of how you described finding talent, um, but along with like, it's carnivalesque, but you need to be, you can't be, uh, you can't let the people feel like they're not part of the carnival, right? Like you can't have a carnival in the, uh, Barnum and Bailey style thing where everyone else, where everyone besides you is a sucker, um, or else your scene is going to go the way of, um, lawbreakers. Right. Um, so that's such a hard balance to, to strike, isn't it? Yeah, and, I, and it's a hard balance to strike, and it's also an like incredibly risky one. Mm. Um, so it's, I mean, and maybe that speaks to some of the, you know, potential overvaluation in esports. Um, <laughs> as I think a lot of people are driven by, like, what it could look like rather than what it does. Um, mm. And I think there's also then that tendency of, you know, when, God, I was at, like, um, the global esports forum in Katowice a few months ago, and like the theme of it was like unleashing the next billion esports fans, and I was like, "What the fuck? There's not even one billion esports fans yet. That's so wow. dishonest." Um, a billion and, esports, esports fans. That's a yeah, lot of esports fans. Yeah, like so, like that's maybe like 250 million people across the world that watch esports. Um, but that's the point is also like they don't, you know, they don't watch all of esports. Very few people like you know actively keep up with multiple scenes. Most people watch their esport. Um, which right. is why if you, you know, you hop onto the respective subreddits for, um, you know, competitive overwatch, CSGO, whatever, um, you know, the actual game based ones, you know, usually have a couple hundred thousand subscribers, um, you know, or more. Whereas like the one that's just like our esports is I think like maybe 15,000, um, you know, okay. people, people, your, your way into esports is not like, you know, esports as such. It's, you know, whatever game you like. Uh, and most people don't, you know, really go that far outside of their scene, except for really historic events. Um, so that's interesting. an interesting. So then that, you know, the, the the figure we get about 250 million esports fans are is like really really misleading because, and it's it sucks that like the word esports is both like sort of the collective noun, but also the plural, um, because it you know it makes it hard to talk about actually you know it's a collection of individual esports, um, you know, each of which has its own kind of, you know, specificity has its own scene and none of them, you know, on their own are getting anywhere close to 250 million viewers. Yeah, that, no, that totally makes sense. So let me ask you, like, with that in mind, where do you see the future of this scene going? Like, 
this complete atomization of it where like no one's really concerned with the capital E esports. It would almost be like it's almost like imagining a uh, an NFL where instead of being interested in one or the other league, like their NFC fans and AFC fans, or like interested in the whole NFL, uh, they're just people who are explicitly interested in one team and will not watch any other uh, game without that team, which I mean, describes a lot of NFL fans, but certainly not the majority. So there's this lack of, um, I don't know, this lack of sort of like brand uh, to sort of say something that grosses me out, brand um, consistency. I mean, how does how does um, how does esports get past this? What does it end up looking like? It's just kind of like a. I can't come up with an answer. I, I wonder if you have one. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to probably disappoint you uh, there. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I mean, because there there is. I mean, there is. I think a tribalism that people will come you know get over over time. Um, the same way that, you know, despite all like, you know, the politics around gamer as an identity, you know, it has become this, you know, more and more normalized, just sort of like dissipating into just like something that people do. Um, yes. you know, esports is, is a good like 10 years behind that. Um, you know, I think it still has kind of a chip on its shoulders being this like lame thing um, that, the, that, you know, the nerds did, not the jocks or, you know, and that's like this, you know, and I don't think this is necessarily true because it's not a zero sum game. Um, but it is, I think, part of the self-image. And so I think that'll get better over time and that'll, like, you know, get people to invest less in, like, the sort of tribalism um, around sure. their games. Um, and secondly, like, I don't I don't see esports, you know, there will, you know, there it'll rise and fall. Esports has always been rising and falling. We've been rising since 2010 or so. So we're probably overdue for a little bit of a contraction. Um, but, you know, I sort of made the point earlier about, you know, this very fundamental relation, fundamental relationship between competition and technology, um, and as as long as you know computers and and other networked technologies are fundamental to how we live our lives, I don't think esports is going anywhere. I think that's what drives people's engagement in it. It's because you you see the technologies that are really defining our moment in sort of their creative competitive potential. Um, and so you know what esports people do will definitely change. Um, and I think a lot of that is, you know, people migrate from esport to esport um, as, you know, new ones come around. Um, Fortnite, you know, whatever. I, no one has any idea what Fortnite esports is going to look like. Um, or right, even, with, sure. even if esports is the best frame for it. Um, but, you know, I yeah. So, I mean, I, I think some of it, yeah, is going to be resolved kind of naturally over time as people become less tribalistic and sort of there becomes a, a sort of more and more normality around watching esports as just being a pretty you know normal competitive thing you watch uh and then the second one will be um there i think there is always going to be every game has a life cycle um and interesting so you know individual games will rise and fall but yeah as long as you know computers are fundamental to how we live our lives they're going to keep growing okay great um, let me indulge you real quick. I want to ask you this question, and I want you to to you know go go as deeply into it as you want. Because I, I say this as um, some. I mean, my brain still is quite academic, uh, and I, I still teach, so I know the urge to just go on and talk shop about your own work. Um, and I want to give you that chance. So, describe for me the way that you understand esports interacting with sort of like. I don't know. However, however you feel is most productive to frame it, like uh, you know, as a new epistemology within the sphere of uh, communications, um, as something you know worth understanding as a shift in sort of like ludology. However you want to imagine it, like what is? Well, I'm not going to talk about ludology. (laughs) You don't have to. (laughs) Uh, What is the? What is the like the intellectual import of esports? If you were to defend it or sort of like claim it. Right. Um, so, I mean, so I'm going to say, I mean, it's it's sports for the age of platform capitalism um, is kind of my, mm. like, the thing I'm, I'm coming down on. And I'll explain sort of what I mean by that. Um, so, you know, I mentioned before that I don't think there's any, like, ontologically, like, stable distinction between, you know, sports and esports when it comes to things like viewership, spectatorship, the body, whatever. Um, the one where there is, is the difference between, you know, sports have to be made into media in a way, right? You got to get cameras, you know, there, people watching, um, you know, sort of, it, it has to become this sort of like sports and technology. But esports, you know, you always already begin, you know, you begin as media. 
um, you, you begin in this sort of like computational space. And that's, you know, something that cannot be said of traditional sports. Um, so that's to me like a clear break. And what that mean, means is, you know, then so the next pivot is thinking about, okay, well, if you're sort of always in this, you know, computer space, then, you know, that leads to like certain like logics of capture. So one of the, you know, sort of stories about, you know, thinking about, you know, StarCraft II kind of died and something that didn't really die. That's something I'm working on right now, an article about it. But, um, you know, when it launched in South Korea, I think it's pretty likely that Blizzard made like next to no money off of it um, because they had, you know, really no way to exert their IP rights over it. And so part of something that, you know, that the fact that these things are media means you're automatically sort of in the space of IP rights. Right. Um, and so, you know, that was in part because you couldn't, um, you know, they, with you know, LAN technology the way it was, they could not, you know, remotely shut down rogue tournaments that didn't pay a licensing fee or anything like that. Uh, and also there were not good IP laws at that point um, between the U.S. and Korea that would allow Blizzard to even, like, you know, exert control over its intellectual property. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, both of those change with StarCraft II, um, the U.S. You know, the U.S. South Korea Free Trade Agreement, um, but uh, which comes into sort of effect in like 2010, um, at the same time StarCraft II comes out. But that's also when they switched to you know BattleNet 2.0, which is you know a centralization technique, meaning that every single StarCraft game in the world is going to run through Blizzard servers. And you know, platforms, whether we're talking about you know the stuff like Amazon Web Services, you know, Facebook, Apple, Google. You know, Microsoft, whatever, um, their centralization. Uh, and what they do is they, you know, they, they create choke points where it then becomes incredibly easy to actually control extraordinary, extraordinary amounts of, um, you know, data and cultural production. And mm. so I'm sort of interested then as, you know, esports being sort of sports for a, a moment in which platforms are really fundamental to the mode of production. Um, and, that's like, you know, and I guess I should also define, you know, really what I mean by platform capitalism here, which is this sense of like, you have these monopolistic digital ecosystems that, you know, connect different users for a commercial exchange. You know, they produce data and accrue value from those exchanges. You know, um, I think Steam is the perfect example of this, as Daniel Joseph's dissertation would point out. Uh, and, you know, it, you, you have to, you know, participate in these ecosystems or risk exclusion. And so um, they're, you know, incredibly efficient way to run a business because you, you know, you create this market and you just take a little, you know, little bit of rent off the top of every exchange. Um, and you're in a really, you know, you can externalize risk. And I think Dota's scene is an incredible example of this because it's, you know, Steam just builds this incredible market and people kind of go wild in it doing their own thing. Uh, and so you can see then how Dota 2, you know, as a scene sort of responds to that logic that it, you know, creates this big market around the game. People try out lots of different things and it's, you know, more or less unregulated, um, or at least, you know, the regulation is happening at the level of, of the platform rather than, you know, well, I mean, obviously there are like, you know, traditional, uh, what we traditionally think of as law involved, but it's very much controlled by the platform. Um, mm -hmm controlled and enabled by it. And so that sort of speaks to, you know, a lot of when we think about culture um, and how it's produced and where it's produced, you know, it is increasingly being, you know, funneled through these choke points. And um, I think esports is sort of, you know, a radicalization of that in some ways, because now you have, you know, you know, it's impossible to think of like now an esport that isn't, you know, running through these centralized servers that, you know, a single like, you know, small group platform owners actually are in control of. Which, yeah, which prior to, to Steam was easily imaginable. Yeah. Um, so, so, that's, um, so that's what I think is sort of significant about, you know, it's not the only thing that, you know, sort of speaks to the platformization of culture. Um, but they are, I think, an interesting way of thinking about how sports are being adapted to this new kind of like material condition uh, under which culture is produced. So that's kind of, you know, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to think about that. Um, you know, and for me, that's like, you know, I've always been fascinated by labor and technology and management uh, and thinking about um, you know, the way that technology manages us as, as workers, um, whether we're talking about, you know, something as simple as, you know, when you're at the, when you're, you know, in the assembly line working at, a, uh, you know, on an assembly line, you know, the actual 
technologies that are there are going to force you to work in certain ways. Um, platforms are, are like that too. You know, they afford different modes of working. Um, but nevertheless, like, you know, so they're managing you in a way. And you know, what that actually means is something that, you know, I'm trying to kind of sort of figure out. I'm, I'm early enough in my like grad school process that I have some time to think about this. But um, certainly then that means you got to think about esports in sort of the context of like precarity and sort of the broad, you know, you know, what is it like 95% of jobs created since the recession are like precarious in one way or another that like right. platform labor, be it, you know, Uber, Airbnb, whatever, um, mechanical Turk, that the only reason those, or at least one of the few reasons that those became so successful is because they absorbed massive unemployment after the recession. Um, right. and so, you know, esports, you know, it's not a coincidence that it comes around at the same moment because, you know, we, <laughs> we accept like massive precarity, um, for a lot of like the workers in esports, meaning the players, um, but not just the players, also the commentators and the stats, uh, the people who work on stats. And um, so, you know, those clearly, and it's obviously there's always been a degree of precarity to, you know, things like baseball and whatnot. Um, but it's sort of intensified by platforms. And, you know, because platforms are all about this like temp work, freelancing, you know, get paid to do what you love, be creative, whatever, um, you know, you can you know, understand like esports firmly in this framework as just being yeah. sort of, you know, one, one version of this, you know, broader like hustling practice and, you know, pervasive culture self-branding or whatever. Um, and so that's like, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am is, you know, esports clearly, you know, participate in these broader, like, you know, economic and political changes. Um, and so for that's me, really yeah, it's a vantage point. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that for a number of reasons. I, I think like, the one thing I'd respond to immediately is that it explains why people are spending so much time for uh, such potentially small payouts. Like, you know, the, the biggest Street Fighter payout uh, or the biggest fighting game payout I've ever seen was the Street Fighter payout, which is um, if you win the Capcom Cup, you get $250,000. It's nothing to sneeze at, but I mean, it's not going to be the rest of your life. Yeah, but the amount of time that you have to put in to to get to that level, I mean, good lord. Um, whereas with baseball, if you put in the time to be a baseball player and you even become like replacement level or below, like you kind of like kick around in the matrix for a little bit, you'll have enough money to live on for the rest of your life. And like, it's just it's it, that it, the idea of precarity explains why that discrepancy can like can be there insofar as like why people would still uh, go for esports at that point. And I think like the other thing that's really interesting is this idea of we, we sort of I forget if we were talking about this on the show or off, but like the idea of value in talking about esports and talking about video games, I mean the, the the one piece of value there is like it's about our economic moment. There's like a there's a I don't know if you've read the the Italian Marxist, the sort of like new autonomia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, like, hmm? I love them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, Lazzarotto so, is my boy. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, we're thinking of the exact same people. I like Fumagalli, but I, I really like Lazzarotto too. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, like the, the um, what, is it, what do they call it? The, uh, the making rent of profit, I believe, is the, is the translation. Mm -hmm. um, and like the idea that it's not about owning capital anymore. It's about owning capital that produces rent. Um, and like that everything you have as a person, as a worker, is rented in some way or another. That in fact, like the profit of late capitalism comes off of the fact that, um, you know, it's a double dip. And I think like your explication there of how esports works is far and away more effective uh, in laying that out than like, I don't know, a lot of a lot of analysis of the gig economy as such. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really useful. I, I, that's a that's. I don't know. That's very compelling. Well, one, thank you. And two, yeah, it's like, um, and I think a lot of people in esports, insofar as like, you know, gamers on the one hand are like hostile to thinking about, you know, what they do as, as political or being invested in these broader political changes. Um, I think esports even more so because I think esports, because it is, you know, this like clearly cast people in a competition with each other, seems like it sort of intensifies a lot of like the shitty things about gaming culture in general. Sure. Um, which, you know, I think, and you know, this goes to thinking about how women are treated in esports. Um, people tend to like 
cast esports as somehow being like you know inherently more masculine because it's like very very competitive or whatever. Um, but it is these like you know that intensification uh, and. You know, I think a lot of people in esports don't want to. Uh, it's you know almost like you know this is something I do for fun. This is something I don't want it to like remind me of these sort of broader changes. But you know, there, it's such a good vantage point for thinking about them and thinking about the way that these massive digital platforms that are so central to how our world is organized and how it operates, you know, are are, are refiguring all the logics we have about culture, uh, and that includes sports. And I think esports is a, a profound example of that. So that's yeah, that's. You know, it's, it's. I don't want that to come across as like I'm like shitting on esports because obviously I, I'm not. No, I love esports. I don't think it is. I think it's. I mean, I think you know, like anything in, that we love, it's it's also a uh, a view into how our world works. Yeah. So, and, and how and how it could be different. Yeah. Um, it's in. It's something like if I could, because I've always I've always thought about you know, what if. Because people, you know, you, people do tend to tend to, I think, take the developer side when they hear about things like crunch, um, and you know, but they, and they recognize it as a problem, but they don't necessarily see it as like a political problem. Uh, and likewise, in esports, there's this constant like anytime some shit goes down with like a player or a player is getting exploited, there's this rush to be like, we need unions, we need player unions. And in, on the one hand, I'm like, like hell yeah, we do. <laughs> but then I'm like, where were you the rest of the time when we're talking about unions? <laughs> <laughs> right and so it's just interesting like you know <clears throat> what kind of like political consciousness does this actually like produce and people who are invested in it and then like because clearly it creates passion and passion that can be harnessed and then articulated to different politics but like no one's actually doing the articulation so that's where you plan to step in yeah and that's like you know i, I don't know how like you know the right way to sort of do that rhetorically yet but um you know because if they could, I think if people could see that you want players unions, in fact, you want like unions everywhere. Um, you know, how do, yeah, how do we get from A to B? I don't, and I don't know right now, but that's something I want to think about. Hmm. Well, that's great. I think that's a perfect place to stop. Uh, it's a, a wonderful ending note. Uh, Will, do you, do you have anything that you feel like we missed? I had one tiny thing, which was earlier when we were talking about retirement, um, and I have, I have kind of, this is a hobby horse for me, is, um, you know, I think that we do get a line a lot about how you're going to retire at 25 in esports because that's when your reflexes start to slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, it varies significantly from game to game because not every, you know, game taxes your reflexes in the same way, nor sort of has the same kind of knowledge burden on you. Interesting. Um, and I think sometimes when we were talking about sort of the social you know, organizations that come up around games, it can be very easy to sort of black box the game and then just talk about everything around it. But in fact, like the, the formal elements of games do, I think have a major shaping force in sort of the forms of social organization around them. And, you know, one example of this being that like a lot of Dota players have like gone, you know, well into their late twenties or even early thirties and been elite players and Parkus it's, it is of course a mechanically demanding game. Um, but also like it has this insanely high burden of knowledge. Um, and if you, you know, you keep, you know, being able to make better and better decisions, you can still be an elite player, even if like, you know, some twerpy like 18 year old is like a little bit mechanically better than you. Um, you know, just, and, you know, that, that changes from, from game to game, where some games that are much more twitchy, like reflexes, make up more, you know, there's, um, and don't necessarily have the extraordinarily deep range of, of, of items and spell combinations and so forth that Dota does, um, where, you know, the only thing it's, you know, you're going to be able to leverage your experience into victories much more than your mechanics into victories. Um, right. And I think that also speaks to, um, you know, we're thinking about, you know, I think the ongoing question of, you know, what will it take to kind of you know have more women competing at the highest level in esports? And it's not a coincidence to me that the majority of of women who have like achieved at the highest level in esports are playing um, single player games. Um, whether that's talking about like Hearthstone or StarCraft or whatever, <clears throat> because it suggests that you know maybe like the the actual thing that's challenging there and sort of as, as presented itself as a barrier. Is in fact the social, the social like you know, organization around the game, and not just the game itself. Yeah. Um, so, or at least insofar as how the social organization of around a game depends on you know what kind of game it is. 
Um, so that's just something that, you know, for the, for the people listening who care about esports uh, and, and politics, thinking about how the actual specific formal aspects of games do have a role in shaping the kinds of, like, you know, social processes around them. So that's, that's my hobby horse, and I'll stop there. No, oh, it's fascinating. Um, should have you on again when we have some more, when you have some more to say about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd love to. Uh, well, thanks so much. Uh, like I sort of said there, we'd love to have you back. This is great. Thanks so much, Will. Um, people can follow you where online? Uh, just William underscore Parton. Um, and I would, yeah, always like love chatting with people. Um, always happy. If you're curious about esports, I'm happy to recommend articles, sources, um, sort of the different you know ways of looking at esports. Because um, there's not just, of course, one way to look at it. It's interesting no matter if you like technology or labor or gender or whatever. Um, you know. It's it really is much more interesting than you think. Like that's that's what I will say. If you're not into it yet, um, every time I've taken another deep dive into it, I've found it more and more fascinating. Like even even if I find it saltifying to watch certain scenes, some scenes I find absolutely engrossing. Um, I still love learning about it. It's uh, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, well, so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, of course, my pleasure. Yeah. Oh, please come back, and uh, yeah, everyone, we'll see you soon. Cool. Thanks, man. Have a good night. You too.